Well, take your Bibles with me and turn to Colossians chapter 4 once again. Colossians chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I wonder if you have ever considered, if you've ever considered or wondered why God has not just taken us to heaven immediately. Those of us who who know Christ, who've been saved, why has he left us here on this earth? And perhaps some of you are wondering that in particular after the year 2020 and the first week of 2021, why are we still here? I mean, after all, uh, we will do everything in the Christian life better in heaven. We will worship God better, we'll obey God better, we'll love one another better, we'll know him perfectly. We'll be able to do everything in the Christian life better in heaven except for one thing. Except for one thing. In fact, it's not just that we won't be able to do it better in heaven, it's that we won't be able to do it at all in heaven anymore. What's that one thing? It is evangelism. Evangelism. And therefore, evangelism must be one of the most important things, not the only important thing, but one of the most important things that we are to do as individuals and churches. This is why the Great Commission is called the Great Commission, right? God has commissioned us. He has sent us, or rather, he has left us here for a purpose, to make disciples of all nations, Now, making disciples is more than just evangelizing, but it is never less than that. It's never less than making disciples. And that's the theme of our passage today, evangelism. As we're getting down to the finish line for the book of Colossians, it's as if we're coming down a mountain, right? We're we're picking up speed until we hit a ramp that essentially sends us out into the world. I kind of think of that one Olympic, winter Olympic sport, you know, where the skier skis down and then boom, just floats off. We're, we're coming down this mountain of theology about Christ, and we are being now sent out with this evangelistic outlook. We started this letter by considering the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ, and we were told to seek the things above where Christ is. And of course, as you consider the glor- this, this glorious Christ, you have to bring these truths down and consider what this means for your own life and my own life. What this means for us is that we must be both sanctified and satisfied, right? And after considering what this means for your own life, you realize that if these things are true, you and I must, we must tell others so that they too can be sanctified and so that they too may be satisfied in Christ, And these last verses of Colossians before the final greetings, these serve as that ramp that sends us out into the world with the good news of Christ. Last week, we looked at Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 4, where we were called to be devoted to prayer, especially evangelistic prayer. And Paul had asked that the Colossians pray for an open door for the gospel, not, not that he'd be released from prison, but an open door for the gospel that he'd be able to speak the gospel clearly, right? That's Colossians 4. You can look again with me just to review. Verses 2 to 4 say, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. 
This is certainly instructive for us that, that we ought to have a heart for the gospel and for the lost, that we ought to pray for open doors for the gospel for ourselves and also for others, uh, especially like our missionaries. That, that would be kind of akin to what Paul uh, was. But what Paul had asked prayer for in these verses, now in our verses today, he commands. What he asked for prayer for in verses 2 to 4, he now commands that believers do. So so follow along with me. Our passage today is Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. The Word of God says this, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. As we walk through these, these two short verses, my, my, prayer, my prayer is that God would cultivate, God would cultivate in us, in you, a heart for evangelism. To help us organize our thoughts as we walk through this, I want to give you four requirements for wise evangelism. Four requirements for wise evangelism. And the first one is this. In order to, to, to have wise evangelism, in order to be a wise evangelist, we must understand our clear assignment. We must, we must understand the clear assignment Look again at verse 5. It says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Verse 5 begins with its command. It's an explicit command. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, walk is often used as a metaphor for how you live. Conduct yourself step by step, moment by moment, the way you live your life. Walk in this way. Walk in wisdom. Okay, in what way or for what purpose? Be wise in your finances? Be wise in your relationships. Be wise in your work. Be wise in what? No, the command here is to be wise in your conduct toward outsiders. Toward outsiders. These verses are about how we relate to outsiders, those who are outside the faith, those who do not believe in Christ, or, or at least do not yet believe in Christ. This isn't about simply how to have cordial relationships with unbelievers or how to have a good reputation amongst your neighbors, though those things are good and important. This is specifically about evangelizing, about sharing the gospel with outsiders, preaching the gospel to those who do not know it, who do not believe it, or do not cherish the good news. And that's why the the verses before this are about opening a door for the gospel and speaking clearly about Christ. That's why the end of our passage in verse 6 talks about how to answer each person. This is about evangelizing outsiders. So if I can spell it out clearly, what is our clear assignment? Our clear assignment is to preach the gospel to unbelievers. Our clear assignment is to preach the gospel to, to unbelievers, to outsiders. This has two aspects I just want to kind of highlight two aspects. There's, there's way more that could be said, but I want to highlight two aspects. This requires, our clear assignment requires a clear message and a clear audience. A clear message and a clear audience. Uh, a clear message. While having wise conduct toward outsiders involves our words and our actions as our whole life, evangelism ultimately has to be done with words. 
Evangelism ultimately has to boil down to words, a message. The good news, the gospel is good news that we share with others. The gospel is not good works that we do for others. There's a massive difference. The, The gospel is good news that we share with others, that we speak to others, that we tell others. It's not good works that we do for others. There's a saying that gained a lot of popularity in recent years. Perhaps you've heard it. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. And and the implication is you can preach the gospel through your acts of love, through your kindness towards others. And and there's there's a sense in which I get it. There's a sense in which I'm like, yes, amen. But there is a far greater sense in which I say absolutely false. Absolutely false. The gospel can only be preached using words. The gospel can only, that we must preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary, would be like saying, feed the poor, use food if necessary. It it doesn't make sense. You, you, You literally cannot feed the poor without using food, and you literally cannot share the good news without words. The gospel is good news, news that we cannot uh, share without words. We must have a clear message. We must have a clear message. Uh, Keep a finger here in Colossians 4 and turn to Romans chapter 10. This is a familiar passage to you, I'm sure, but I want you to listen to this again with, with fresh eyes and a clear mind. Romans 10, verses 13 and 14. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a huge promise, by the way. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Without someone preaching. This is not just about go and do good things, go and be kind, though those are important. Let's do those things. Unless someone speaks the gospel, and and I would include in that, you know, written forms of communication, that's fine, right? Sign language for the deaf, that's fine, yes. But but I mean words with content, right? Unless the gospel is going forth in intelligible communication, in language, people cannot be saved. Do you understand this? There is a clear message that the gospel is not an example that others should follow, The gospel is not advice about how someone should live. It's not telling someone what you must do. The gospel is good news about what has already been done for you. It's good news of what God has already done for you in and through Jesus Christ. Preaching the gospel is not telling someone the different ways they need to fix their lives in order to be loved by God. It is telling people that in spite of their sin, God has so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus Christ, that that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life and not perish. This is the good news. This is the gospel that must be shared so that someone can hear it and hearing it, understand it, and understanding it, believe it so that they might be saved. Rosaria Butterfield, uh, she's a a Christian author who who, uh, was saved out of a, a of a lifestyle of sin. Rosaria Butterfield, she said, there is a core difference between sharing the gospel with the lost and imposing a specific moral standard on the unconverted. 
There is a core difference between sharing the gospel with the lost and imposing a specific moral standard on the unconverted. So you see, when we're preaching the gospel, we're not just trying to get people to change their lives, fix their lives, do this better, do that differently. We are trying to tell them about the good news of what God has already done. And and of course, certainly when we share the gospel with others, when we tell others about the work of Christ, it should be accompanied by our works of love. It should be accompanied by a changed life. Absolutely. And, And preaching the gospel will require sharing the bad news of how we've all sinned and fallen short of God's righteous standards. But, but merely doing kind deeds or, or preaching the law falls short of evangelism. We must preach Christ. As first Corinthians two says, we must preach Christ and him crucified. That's, that's what we must do. If we do not preach Christ and we do not preach Christ crucified, then we have not preached the gospel. In order to fulfill our clear assignment, we must understand our clear message. And it needs to be communicated in words. But not only that, we need to have a clear audience. A clear audience. The verse says to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Toward outsiders. Now first that word towards, it's easy to skip over that, but but did you notice the direction of that word? It's not that we're to move away from outsiders, away from unbelievers. We are to move towards them. Let me ask you, is that your instinct? Is that your instinct? The goal is not to retreat from the world into our comfortable, safe bubbles where everyone agrees with us. We're not hunkering down in fear so that we can try to preserve ourselves. The, the, the more uh, divergent someone else's worldviews and political views and, and moral views, the, the more different they are than us, does that scare you and make you withdraw or does that pull you towards them because you recognize they need Christ? We are to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. We are not to be those who are fearful and retreating. We are on the side of the Lord God, the Almighty. We have the gospel, which is the very power of God unto salvation. We should be boldly advancing with the word and making disciples. C.T. Studd, a British missionary in the 1800s, he said, some want to live within the sound of church or a chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop in a yard of hell. That's, that's the mindset of one who has been captured by the beauty and glory of Christ and the urgency of the gospel. Do you move toward unbelievers or away from them? Here, we're to walk in wisdom towards, here it says, outsiders. Now about that term outsiders, perhaps this sounds offensive and exclusive. Perhaps even as I was reading that verse, even now as I'm saying it, you kind of go, ooh, Outsiders? Like, that's not a very friendly word. That's not very seeker-sensitive. Some, some church leaders in, in recent years have begun advocating this idea that unbelievers need to belong before they believe. Have you ever heard that? We should not be exclusive. We, we, we should try not to be offensive. We want to we bring everybody in, and you know what? They need to belong before they believe. Belong to the church. Be involved in everything before they believe. Friend, let me tell you, no. If they belong without believing, they won't see the need to believe. It will be assumed that they believe. And that does no one any favors. There are 
There are outsiders. This is a biblical term. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Thessalonians 4. And here in Colossians 4, there are outsiders. They are those who are outside the blessings of Christ. We should not be more than the Bible, but we also need to be careful that we don't try to make ourselves more inclusive than the Bible, as if we can outlove God. God is very inviting, very inclusive. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, Come to me all, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John 6, 37, whoever, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There is this breadth and universality to the invitation of Christ. All are welcome. All are invited, but they must come. And until they do, they are outside. They are outside the blessings of salvation. Blurring the line between believers and outsiders is actually not loving. It is lying. Blurring the lines between believers and outsiders is like knowing that a, that a patient has days left to live because of an aggressive form of cancer, but telling them with a smile they're going to be fine and they'll live a long life. Blurring the lines does nobody any favors. We, we need to have a clear assignment knowing that we have a clear message to give and we have a clear audience, that there are those who are outside the blessings of Christ. And, and if they die in that state, they will spend they will spend an eternity apart from Christ, apart from the blessings of Christ, apart from the joy of Christ, but very much in the presence of his wrath. I look at my own life, and I... I, I I see that I'm too easily satisfied with being comfortable. And that dulls the senses for the urgency of the gospel. I'm just comfortable and glad that I'm okay. Heaven's taken care of in eternity. And presently, things aren't going too bad either. Friends, do you understand there are outsiders? I don't say that to exclude. I don't say that to judge and look down. I say that to say there's our target. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Secondly, if you're going to engage in wise evangelism, you not only need to have a, a clear assignment, you also need to have an urgent stewardship, an urgent Stewardship. Look at Colossians 4, verse 5 once again. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Making the best use of the time. Being wise requires that we make the best use of the time. Very simple, very straightforward. Uh, the sister epistle to Colossians, Ephesians 5, uses very similar language. Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16, you can just listen to this. Look carefully then how you walk, same word, Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Same idea. If you're going to be wise, then you need to walk, live in such a way that you're making the best use of your time. Psalm 90 verse 12 says something very similar. Teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Being wise requires an awareness of time, an awareness of our limited time. By the way, in Greek, there are two different words for time. There's the word chronos and there's the word kairos. Chronos is the idea of time as a measurement, right? Like the seconds that go by in a minute. Tick, 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 
tick chronos, just time goes on. You, you measure time in this way as, as it goes on. The, the other word for time in Greek is kairos, which, which means a set amount of time or a season of time or maybe perhaps a window of opportunity. It's sort of like the difference between basketball and baseball. Right? Basketball games are measured in chronos time. There's a certain number of minutes that you have before the game ends. Baseball is measured in kairos time, the number of opportunities that you have, and it's different. A baseball game could go on for hours and hours and hours. Basketball, sure, you've got your timeouts, you've got your overtimes, but there's a, there's a time limit. Basketball is chronos kind of time. Baseball is a kairos kind of time, the opportunities. And the word that's used here, making the best use of the time, is kairos. The, the windows of opportunities that you're given. So, so absolutely, make the most of every second. Make the most of every minute. Make the most of every day. Yes, but the emphasis here is to make the most of every opportunity. Make the, the most of every opportunity. There are opportunities that will come up today or tomorrow that might never come up again. So, so when that opportunity comes and that opportunity arises, you have to seize it. You have to use it. Again, using the idea of baseball, right? It's as if God is, is pitching opportunities to you. He's, he's pitching opportunities to you, and they're going right over home plate. And the question is, will you swing? That pitch that just went by will never come by again. That is an opportunity, and you need to be wise and make the best use of those opportunities. A wise heart understands both the brevity of our lives, but also the uniqueness of each moment. Like the pitch that comes over home base, if you don't swing at it when it comes, you might never get that chance again. That moment of time when, when that individual that you've been praying for, that you've been thinking about sharing the gospel with, when they ask you that question, when they're, when, when they're in need, they're broken, and, and you, you feel, maybe here's my chance, maybe, maybe I should... Tell them about Jesus, and you see the ball coming. But out of fear, you chicken out, and you don't swing. You might not get that chance again. Now, certainly, God is sovereign. God, God is a God of second chances. He'll, he'll bring others around, but we, we should not presume upon that. We have to make the most of every opportunity. And by the way, in our case, one of the great things about this is you can never strike out. Keep swinging at each ball. There's, there's no need to pull back. It's not like you, you swing three times and you miss and you strike out and you, you can't share the gospel again for another year. That's not how this works. So, so don't, don't wait for the perfect opportunity. That, that rarely happens. Pray. Pray for the opportunities that come and then entrust those opportunities to the Lord. But the wise person also understands not just the that these opportunities come and go, but, but that there's a uniqueness to your opportunities. The opportunities that you might have might not be available to others. In other words, there might be people in your life who will never know one single other Christian. Have you ever thought about that? There, there, there might be. There might be people in your life who, who never have a close friendship with anybody else who knows the Lord. You have a unique opportunity to speak Christ to them. Are you making the best use of your opportunities with that person? 
Lastly, the wise person understands their urgent stewardship overrules their feelings of inadequacy. You don't need to be a professional evangelist to share the gospel. I hope you know that. You don't need to feel like, ah, I'm, just not, I'm just not good enough. That's not, that's not my thing. I'm not a pastor. One commentator on the book of Colossians, he said this, in examining the explosion of the early Christian movement after Paul, many sociologists have now recognized that most conversions are not produced by professional missionaries conveying a new message, but by rank-and-file members who share their faith with their friends and their relatives. That's how most evangelism spread in the early church as Christianity was exploding. And so, friend, if, if you have come under the false idea that you have to be some sort of professional to share the gospel, let me demystify that. There are no professional evangelists, at least not biblically. If, if, you, if you are saved, you know enough to share the gospel. If you have been saved, you know enough to evangelize to somebody else. If, if you don't know how to share the gospel... I want to be careful how I say this, but I want to say it directly here. If you don't know how to share the gospel, either one of two things is true. Either you are not thinking about evangelism correctly, or you are not saved. Either you are misunderstanding evangelism, you think it means you have to have a PhD in in philosophy and you have to debate all these different issues, which is a wrong idea of evangelism, Or you are not saved. If you're saved, you know the gospel and you know enough to fumble through the gospel with somebody and the Lord is pleased to use our meager efforts. So friends, do you you understand that you have a clear assignment? Do you have a sense of your urgent stewardship which, by the way, none of you, if you're a believer, are exempt from that stewardship. But thirdly, if you're going to be a wise evangelist, you also need to understand how to have gracious speech. Gracious speech. Back to Colossians 4, verse 6. The Word of God says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. With salt. This is, by the way, uh, this is not to say that if you're being gracious, you will never offend. You'll never say anything that might rub someone the wrong way. You know, one of my seminary professors used to say, you know, when people say to him, Pastor, you're rubbing the cat the wrong way, he says, then you need to turn the cat around. The cat's facing the wrong way. There's times we've got to tell people, hey, you. You're not aligned with God. You you are running against him. You are living disobedient to him. There are times where we need to say things that are hard, but can I put it this way? There there is no need to be a jerk for Jesus. Our speech is always to be gracious, always. No matter 
who the person is in front of you, no matter what's going on in our society, no matter how this person has been your enemy and thorn in the flesh at your workplace, you are to let your speech always, at all times, in all circumstances, always to be gracious. Again, you can speak the truth in love. There are times we need to be firm. There's times we need to be direct. But there's always a sense of grace that this person knows in their heart of hearts that you are for them, not against them. Let your speech always be gracious. You know, I think of, of 2 Timothy chapter 2 for this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, you can turn there to the right a couple books. 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 to 26. These are words that I, I, I try, by God's grace, to, to make true of me. 2 Timothy 2, 24 says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Verse 26 is interesting there, by the way. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. When people make foolish decisions, when people make sinful decisions and rebel against God, it is not just that they're not smart enough to get it. It's not like, well, let me just explain it to you again, because maybe then you'll get it. There is a blindness. There's a spiritual blindness. There's a spiritual captivity. Even the snare of the devil, it says. And so we depend on the Lord. We depend on the power of the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. But, but I, I, just, I, I love the, the, the opening words of those verses, not quarrelsome, kind to everyone, patiently enduring evil. Another translation says, patient when wronged. When you're wronged, are you able to be patient? And are you able to correct with gentleness? Gentleness. Let your speech, your words always be gracious. And then it says, seasoned with salt. Seasoned with salt. I know some of you might be health nuts. I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean only a little bit. But I like things being tasty. So salt, yes, please. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. It's tasty. It's engaging. It's appetizing. You're not putting people off by the way that you interact with them. Again, the, the, the truth is hard and the truth will turn people away. But the way you talk to people should be as engaging and inviting and as gracious and seasoned with salt as possible. And there's a difference between that and simply being entertaining. Uh, Max Stiles wrote a little book called Evangelism. So helpful. Evangelism, how the whole church speaks of Jesus. And he says this, Jesus was engaging, but he never entertained. There is a huge difference, one that is lost on the modern church. We're not trying to entertain people. You can't entertain someone into heaven. You can't entertain someone into heaven. You, you should be engaging. You should be gracious. Seasoned with salt, yes, but not entertaining. We are speaking the truth of God. Our, our, our job is not to do a song and dance and try to keep people entertained and try to compete with whatever the world is doing. No, we, we have a far superior message. And when God is speaking through his word by his spirit, 
Those whom he has called will hear it, and they will listen. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but we live in a day and age that sort of puts truth on the second level. But on the top level, they, they want beauty. They, they want what, what feels good. True? Ah, your truth, my truth, what truth? But, but does this resonate with me? Is what they're looking for. Now, as believers, we know truth matters. Truth matters. But can I also say this? The gospel truth is not only true, but it's also good. It's also good. When we are presenting the truth of the gospel, it's not like telling our kids, hey, you need to eat your vegetables. It's good for you. But I don't want it. It's good for you. Hey, you need Jesus. I don't really like it, but it's good for you. That's not the way we share the gospel. The gospel is the greatest news ever. And woe to us if we share it like it's some backwards, second rate, ah, oh, take it or leave it kind of thing. One author, Elliot Clark, he wrote this book called Evangelism as Exiles. Even that title is helpful, isn't it? Especially in the day and age that we live in, Evangelism as Exiles. Listen to this. This is so helpful. The apologetic force of our preaching isn't always that our message is more believable than another, but that it's more desirable. In evangelism, we don't simply make a logical case, but a doxological case, a worship, a case based on worship. We aren't just talking to brains. We're speaking to hearts that have desires and eyes that look for beauty. We're not merely trying to convince people that our gospel is true, but that our God is good. Over the years, I've tried to move away from cold, structured arguments into exaltations of praise, from merely explaining why Jesus is needed to showing why he should be wanted, from defending the Bible's truthfulness to rejoicing in its sweetness. Now, don't get me wrong. Should we present the Bible as true? Yes. Should we make a logical case? Yes. Should we do all those things? Yes. But don't stop there as if you're just some calculator trying to compute the facts. We worship God with joy. And as a world that is weary, as, a, as the world that is bogged down by everything, when they see your joy, they say, what is up? I want some of that. We we need to speak of Christ with exaltation. Not just can I, can I tell you about Jesus, but can I tell you about what makes Jesus so good? So we are to have gracious speech. We're to have our speech seasoned with salt, to be engaging, to to offer to thirsty souls the living water. But not only that, lastly, we are to have personalized answers. Personalized answers. Again, Colossians 4, verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Each person. Wisdom is needed for how you answer each person. And that's a good translation, each person. It's not just how to answer everyone, 
Uh, so you know how to answer everyone. There's kind of this breadth and universality to it, but it can kind of feel like a cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all answer. No, the idea here is that you're answering each specific person. Each specific person. This is similar to, to 1 Peter 3.15. You're probably familiar with that verse. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for, the, for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. There's a sense in which you, you want to be ready to answer. You want to be ready to answer why there's this hope in you. And the, the assumption in 1 Peter 3.15 and the assumption here in Colossians 4 is that people will ask you, which is why you need to answer. Do you, do you live a life that invites questions? Why do you do what you do? You, you're really odd, Christian. You're really odd. You go to church on Sunday. You, you sit outside in the cold on Sunday right now. You're, you, you give your money to the church. You don't do these and those things that everybody else is doing. Why? You are so weird. And rather than, oh, no, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not that weird. I'm just like you. Look, I'm just like you. No, no. We say, yeah, I'm weird. Can I tell you about why? Are you ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you? And, and are you ready to answer each person according to who they are? Now, now, this is not relativism. Let me make this clear. This is not relativism. One gospel for you, a different gospel for you, and a different gospel for you. No, 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 no. There is one gospel. Praise God. There's one gospel, there's one way, there's one truth, there's one savior, there's one mediator between God and man. There's one way. But we all struggle in different ways, and Jesus answers every single need of every single human heart. I mean, it's just, it's interesting when you think about the New Testament even, uh, there's a reason why Paul wrote the letter of the, uh, to the Colossians that he did, and he wrote a different letter to the Galatians, he wrote a different letter to the Romans, he wrote a different letter to all these different people because they all had different needs, but the same Savior, the same Lord, the same authority, but there were different applications. And so similarly, when we're evangelizing, when we're sharing the gospel, yes, there's one message, but there might be different points of emphasis, and we need to know how to answer each person. For, for the the one who's the fastidious legalist, the self-righteous person who thinks I'm going to be okay because I live a better life than X, Y, Z people. And it's based on this standard that I have made up for myself. There's a certain way to talk to that person. And the scriptures are sufficient for that. Do you, do you answer that person and, and show them the futility of their works? Do you show them the sinfulness of their hearts, even though they think they've met whatever standard that they've set up? For the person who hates the idea of authority, hates the idea of God, hates the idea of any limits and restrictions, sure, tell them, absolutely tell them that God has a standard, absolutely. Don't, we don't shy away from any of that, but, but do you tell them, the thing that you're trying to find, joy and satisfaction and pleasure, the things you're trying to find, you are not going to succeed going the path you're going on because the only place where you will find lasting joy, lasting pleasure, lasting happiness is in the presence of God, your Savior, and your Creator. We need to answer each person. We, we need to have wisdom in our evangelism. Again, this is not relativism trying to change the gospel. This is trying to make the, the word of God cut with specificity, confront with specificity, and also 
woo with specificity. We're not trying to obscure the truth. We want to make the truth as clear as possible and as as applicable as possible so that it answers their specific needs and confronts their specific idols. And by the way, you're trying to answer each person. You're not trying to win a culture war. You're trying to win a soul. These days, we live in such a polarized, such a polarized time where people want to debate politics, debate worldview, debate everything. And, and sometimes we think as Christians, our job is to debate these things in the public square. And there's a place for that. Uh, don't get me wrong. There is a place for that. But as individual believers, as we are making disciples, making disciples is not the same thing as pushing X, Y, and Z agenda. We are not trying to win a culture war. You are trying to win souls with the gospel. We, we are trying to explain why the gospel is needed, why Jesus is good to that person, not just why their particular views on this and that issue are wrong. It's, if you die on every hill on secondary matters, you will never get to the hill on which Christ died. That needs to be the priority. And so the gospel must be clear. We need to speak the gospel to the people that God has put in our lives personally and individually. And this is why the best evangelism is, is, is not always done through some large prepackaged program, but the best evangelism is done by passionate people because it's personal. Again, Max Stiles he wrote this in a culture of evangelism. So he's, he, in his book, he talks about programs for evangelism, event-driven evangelism, and then he contrasts that with a culture of evangelism. And here's what he says. In a culture of evangelism, there is an understanding that everyone is engaged. Have you ever heard someone say, evangelism is not my gift, as if that excused him from sharing his faith? That's a kindergarten understanding of evangelism. All Christians are called to share their faith as a point of faithfulness, not gifting. Evangelism is a matter of faithfulness, not gifting. None of us is exempt. None of us is excused. Can I put it this way? Me getting up and preaching the Bible to believers once a week does not exempt me from needing to be faithful in evangelism the other days of the week. We're not just after making a church that has programs. What do you do for evangelism? We have this program, that event, this event, this on the schedule. There's a place for that. There's a place for that. But how much more effective, how much more exciting to be in a church where there is a culture of evangelism? Let me put it this way. What... what, What is an evangelistic church? What's a church that prioritizes? What's a church that is strong at, faithful in evangelism? What does that look like? Is that a church that has a lot of evangelistic programs or a lot of evangelistic events? Or is it a church that has a lot of evangelistic people? It doesn't matter what's on the schedule. It doesn't matter what day of the week, what time of the year. If a church is evangelistic, its people will be evangelizing Monday through Saturday. An evangelistic church is not merely one that has programs, evangelistic programs, but one that has evangelistic people. Again, 
Nothing wrong with programs. Nothing wrong with events. Let's, let's do those things. But don't let participation in events and programs cover for you so that you don't need to evangelize ever at any other time. Having a lot of church programs can make it seem like a church is really active, but oftentimes the comfort and convenience of church programs can hide the reality that a church is spiritually asleep even while physically busy with a flurry of human activity. So, so let me ask you, what? let's dream together. What, what might it look like to have a culture of evangelism? What would it look like to have a culture of evangelism? I think some of the indicators would be that we, that we talk about evangelism, not just from the pulpit, but from the pew or from the lawn chair. <laughs> that as you see one another, it's not, hey, you know, how are the kids, how's work, how's this, how's that? Hey, can you pray for me? I've been trying to find a way to share the gospel with so-and-so. Hey, if I bring my neighbor to church next week, will you talk to him? Will you talk to her? Hey, how did that conversation go that you told me about last week? I was praying for you. Do we, do we talk about evangelism? Do we pray for evangelism, both praying for opportunities and then praying for fruit from those opportunities? Do we even talk about our failed attempts? Yeah, last week I tried to talk to my neighbor and uh, we had a good relationship and now it's kind of awkward. But I'm praying that God reopens that door. You know, if the only stories we share about evangelism are the ones that end in someone receiving Christ, that's going to be kind of discouraging. But if all of us come every week and we're like, I share the gospel with this person, they said no, this person, they said, but, but, but we're all doing it. We're all being faithful and we're all praying that God would save. And, and you're going you're gonna to hear all of a sudden, hey, that, this person wanted to come to church. Hey, this person says, you know what, let's do a Bible study. I, I'm, I'm interested in learning more. And we all share in that fruit as we talk about it, as we pray together, as we celebrate, not just, hey, guess where that kid's going to college? Is that, is that the highest thing here? No. Hey, guess who just came to know the Lord? And there'd be rejoicing over that. Where do we evangelize? Evangelize your neighbors, your family members, your friends, at church. What do you mean at church? At church. 1 Corinthians 14 says, assumes that there will be unbelievers in our midst from time to time. At church, evangelizing at church should be like shooting fish in a barrel. If you're not a believer here and you're joining us, I don't take that metaphor the wrong way. Imagine somebody who's been going through the hardest year of their life and they say, you know what, I, I drove by and I heard some ruckus and I see some people, so I decided to stop in here at church to see what's the commotion because I, I'm, I'm lost, I'm hopeless, I'm wandering. And they come in and sit down and people kind of say hi and then they leave. They, they talk to their friends and this person stands there. They're like, I was here to try to hear about this message about some Jesus guy, but no one's talking to me. And they leave. They were at church and no one talked to them about the gospel. May that never happen here. As you, as you look around, try, try to know, try to be familiar with who is in our church family. Why? So that when an outsider comes inside, we sick them. With love and gracious speech, it's seasoned with salt and all that, but we sick them. There should be a line to meet them and to share the gospel with them, to love them, to say, hey, let's go out to lunch. Yeah, let's go get some dim sum. You don't like dim sum? Let's go get Chipotle. Whatever. There should be a line to 
to evangelize here at church. When, when an unbeliever or when somebody that we just don't know, you, you don't know, somebody walks in off the street, you don't know, will we go to them and say, I want to, I want to talk to you. I want to ask you, not just about the weather, but I want to ask you about your soul. So, so friends, let's dream together. Let's pray together. Let's get out of our own comfort zones. Let's get over our own fears and pray that the Lord of the harvest would make us a church that has a culture of evangelism. And it starts not with the person next to you, but it starts with you. It starts with me. So I want to revisit the question that I started with today. Why has God left us here to evangelize? But, but why did he leave us specifically? Or maybe, if I, if I can put it this way, why did he leave you specifically? Because there are people that you know, there are people you can talk to, there are opportunities that you will have that no one else will have. He uses weak, common jars of clay so that he himself gets the glory. So friends, may, may, may God make us an evangelistic church. Not that we would just have evangelistic programs, but that we would be evangelistic people. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, Lord, humbled in our hearts. Humbled because of the many times that we have failed to speak of Christ. Humbled because of the many times that we've been fearful, ashamed. Lord, forgive us. But not only forgive us, but then embolden us. Embolden us with joy, embolden us with confidence, not in ourselves, but in your word, and embolden us with the joy of the reward of seeing people come to know you. Embolden us with the joy of knowing that Christ will receive the the reward for his suffering. Lord, we beg, make us an evangelistic people and start with each one of us individually. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.